Hey, good morning, everyone. And um, blessing that you are here and a blessing to be able to bring this before you this morning. Um, I would ask for your prayers as I preach. Um, I didn't have a great day yesterday. had some certain troubles, but also the topic that we're going to be dealing with. We, I've decided that I am going to go through a doctrinal series. I'm going to be going through our statement of faith. And I'm going to be presenting the doctrines that we see within the statement of faith and teaching why we hold to those doctrines. I'm going to be bringing out those things that are there. There are some elements within that that has practical implications for our lives. But the challenge that I have and the greatest challenge that I have is that I, I don't want to reduce this sermon series to a lecture series. Uh, it has to be a sermon. In other words, it has to be uh, that which presents the truth but also can be applied to our lives. We can look at its applications <coughs> and how important it is. We begin with the first point that we have within our statement of faith and that is the source of the Word of God. And, and as we think about that source of the Word of God, I can't help but think that there is nothing more important. There is nothing more vital. There is no foundation that needs to be more secure, more absolute, more resolute than the knowledge of where we gain all our doctrines from. And I know that sounds on the surface a um, elementary, really. It sounds pretty straightforward, you know. I mean, obviously, if you know, if, if the nation runs on a constitution, then that constitution should underpin all the laws of that nation. It's when we reject the constitution itself that the laws themselves lose all form of relevance and people basically just do whatever they like and we become lawless. This is exactly the same with regards to the Word of God. I don't want you to think for a moment that the very source of the Bible, the Word of God, where we get those doctrines from is not an important thing. We're living in a world today where we seem to have a polyglot of translations. We have 450 translations in the English language respecting the very, supposedly, the Word of God. And you're thinking, how this is, is God confused? Is he, is he, does he, is he schizophrenic? I mean, what, what, what sort of a God permits such confusion within the entire world? And especially in the language that is what's recognised around the world as the only ever global language in history. No language in the world has ever been studied as much as the English language has. Every country in the, around the world has their students studying English. It's the language of music, it's the language of the internet, it's the language of writings, it's the language of laws, it's the language of everything right across the board. It's the language of entertainment. If you want to get ahead anywhere in life, you need to learn that particular language. And indeed, around the world, the English language is being taught in every single school. And yet English seems to be the only one of all the languages of the world that is suffered with a pervert amount of Bible translations. Who's involved in that? I thought the Bible said that God is not the author of confusion. Something is happening, however. We're living in a time right now where everything with respect to the truth is so broken, so fallen apart, so dismembered. 
people no longer have any comfort. They don't, they're looking for the truth somewhere. They're looking for the truth anywhere, but they can't seem to find it. And no matter where they go, their source of truth has just such a, such a broken underlay. And they feel that they're going to fall straight through it at any particular moment. There's nothing there to bear them up. There's no foundation. There's nothing solid. They look at the Bible, then they ask themselves the question, well, which Bible? And then when they find a Bible, then they look at a word and the pastor's just told them, well, that word shouldn't be there, it should be this word. So they ask themselves, well, which word? And then they go to a Greek and they ask yourself, which Greek? There's all these Greek dictionaries. I mean, if there was one Greek dictionary, that'd be great. That could be your final authority. But no, 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 there's not. There's over 40 of them. Who now is the authority? This confusion is manifesting itself in the world today where people don't know anything anymore. They recognise there's contradictions all across the place and they're suffering with anxieties and with fears and they don't know what's real anymore. They don't know what's real. And it's going to come to a head, I think. And And I see that coming about. This passage here in Revelation struck me. It struck me here because it speaks about the last of the last days. And verse 4, it says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And this one, right in the middle. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. I know, I need to pray. I need to pray. Sorry. Heavenly Father, I need you, dear Lord. I need you more than ever with regards to this message this morning. I pray, dear Lord, that you would be with me and that you would in every way bring forward an understanding of the importance of your word to this congregation, that they too, dear Lord, may see a conviction within their own hearts, that they would be so willing to stand on the inerrant truth of the word of the living God, that they too would be willing to give themselves to it completely. I ask and pray, dear Father, you would bring clarity to the hearts and to the minds of those who are hearing, a logic, dear Father, a basic understanding of those things that you promise within the scriptures. And I pray, dear Lord, it will be a blessing to us all. Please be with me, dear Lord, as I preach. Amen. Amen. Souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image. This is the end of this present world. This is the end of this present world system. This is in chapter 20 of Revelation. Prior to this, we had chapter 19. Chapter 19 has Christ returning making landfall on the Mount of Olives, and the armies of heaven follow him. That's the church following him back. Chapter 21, we have the new heaven and the new earth. We have that being created at that particular time. And here is a report about what John has seen, those who are beheaded for the witness of Jesus. There's something that's going on here because these people are standing firm on a foundation of truth for which they are willing to give their lives, for which they are holding on to with all their lives. They're willing to be beheaded for the sake of the very word of the living God. 
Everything that we know about the Lord Jesus Christ is found in the covers of the Bible. We don't know anything about Jesus other than what's in here. So clearly that is the source of these people and that's why it adds and for, for the Word of God and it's not an addendum and it doesn't link the two together. It's through the Word of God that they have any knowledge of Christ. In the last days, there are going to be a group of people who are going to be holding on to one book as their final and absolute authority. And that momentum has been building since the 1950s. It's been building up and building up. And in your newsletters, I'm going to be running a series of quotations since the 1700s of individuals who have believed that the book that we hold to, which is the King James Version of the Bible, they believed was the very perfect Word of God for the English-speaking people. And they had every reason to believe that to be the case. And you'll see quotations in there from people who are both those who admire the Word of God and those antagonists who also identify all these vain Christians who hold to their English translation, you know, and the overall desire to undermine the English translation of the Word of the Living God, the so-called paper pope that the Roman Catholics charge us to hold. What many people don't understand and don't realise is that since the time of the Reformation, there has been an active counter-Reformation by the Roman Catholic Church to undermine this so-called paper pope to take away from the English people the very words of the living God. And all they needed to do is create a little bit of doubt and we'll get into that in future messages. It's all they needed to do. And so they have done and they have done very, very well. They have managed in every way to undermine the word of God and take it out of the hands of those Christians who would otherwise be sitting there enjoying and reading and believing every word that's on the page. And pastors that have been trained in these theological seminaries and these Bible colleges have been the devil's tools to do exactly that. Hath God said, they would ask from the pulpit. Ah, that word there doesn't really mean what it actually says. You see, I have Greek. They can't speak Greek. None of them can speak Greek. None of them can speak Hebrew. No, they, they choose a lexicon And they fiddle around until they find a word that suits their own purpose and then they plonk that one in there. And immediately, as soon as they've done that and you've believed it, what's just happened is that the Word of God has just come from... You've had it in your hands, now it's gone. Finished. You no longer have the Word of God. You no longer have the Scriptures because they've just ripped it right out of your hands and they've said, no, I want you to get rid of that book and I want you to trust me. That's exactly what they've said. That's exactly what they've said. The final authority now is me, the pastor. Look at me. I'm the one that you need to have your allegiance to. I'm the one that you need to obey. I'm the one that has the final authority. Now you can't even hold the pastor accountable for anything anymore. doesn't matter what he does. Now all of a sudden he can simply go to the Greek. Ah, yeah, but what you have there is not right because my Greek says... I did that in a Bible college. Did that in a Bible college to the to, to the lecturer who 
The Victorian Baptist Bible College, they hold to the King James Bible, so they say. We got to a particular passage in the book of Judges, chapter 11. He changed two words. Two words. Changed two words. You remember the, you remember the account. It's the rash vow of Japheth. You remember that. Judges chapter 11, a horrific, horrific account where he testifies to the Lord and he says, the first that comes out from my home to greet me, I will offer as a burnt sacrifice, as a burnt offering unto the Lord. And it was his only child that came to him. Now, it could have been any of the animals that came because they have the mangers within the house. That's where a manger is usually left within the house. So, but it was his daughter, his only daughter that came out. And she said, do to me as you have given unto the Lord, only let me go and bewail my virginity for a certain period of time. And all the people every year go to lament her. He changed the word lament to rejoice. You can't get much more opposite than that. But he said the Hebrew allows that. The Hebrew allows rejoice instead of lament. Okay, we have the word let. The word let means to hinder and to allow. Yeah, right. You have it in tennis. The word "let" means to hinder the ball as it makes its path. That's why it's called "let," but it also means to allow, doesn't it? So he said the Hebrew allows that, and he then changed the complete doctrine that was there and said that she was actually simply offered as a as a uh, basically a, a servant in the temple. It wasn't a burnt offering. And I looked at him and I said, "If you can do that, if you can justify doing that with this book." then this book ain't worth the pages that it's written on and I chucked it across the table. I was absolutely disgusted. Beloved, if I don't have every word of God, I'll give up what I'm doing now and go and get a real job. What's the point? We might as well all go home. If we don't have the very words of God, then we might as well just go home. It's the reason why the Bible says to the pure, all things are pure, but to the impure and those vain in mind, there is nothing pure. And this is exactly the state that we've come to today. Mind you, this is not the sermon I wrote. I didn't write anything like this. These Christians are beheaded for their witness of what they believe to be the very words of God. They are emboldened to stand for what they know to be true, not what they think, what they know to be true. And I find it curious that in the light of the 100 years of attack on the Bible, on the English Bible during the 1800s, that during that particular time, all these other things were popping up. Do you think that that's curious? Do you think that in the 1800s, we have the rise of Charles Darwin? We have the rise of Karl Marx? We have the rise of Sigmund Freud? We have the rise of Friedrich Nietzsche? All these individuals who pervert the entire culture seem to be around at that very same time. We have the rise of German rationalism that now decides that they want to criticise the Bible and create doubt. Do you think that's a coincidence or do you think the devil had a bit of a hand? We're going to be discovering through this series that the devil had a tremendous hand. This passage tells me that those who are to be beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God have found the perfect source of truth not subject to the doubt created by misguided men. They found it. They found it. Now, a statement of faith on this issue. The church has a statement of faith. It's part of its constitution. And part of its constitution, it identifies directly the foundation for which this church stands. It doesn't have a 
fluffy sort of roundabout way of, and I'll show you an example of one that does, that you might be able to recognise that they don't speak directly. Our church's statement of faith regarding the Holy Scriptures on point one is this. We believe in the 66 books of the Holy Bible contained in the Old and New Testaments as the very Word of God. Believing that every word is verbally and plenary inspired by God and perfectly preserved for English-speaking people in the text of the authorised version of the Bible, the KJV. We hold this book to be our final authority in all matters. The Bible then being the supreme authority by which all human conduct, creeds and opinions are judged. And then I have a handful of proof texts, their reference points. I want you to notice something, that there's a specific distinction between this first point related to the Scriptures and I want you to compare it to the ex- exactly to the example that I'm going to give you that I just downloaded straight off the Victorian Baptist Bible College website, their own statement of faith and this is what theirs is. Number one, the Scriptures. It's in the same position. All 66 books of the Bible in its original documents are the inspired Word of God without any errors in their statements. It is the complete revealed Word of God for this age. More than merely becoming God's Word through an experience, every word of the Bible is definitely the inherent, infallible, eternal Word of God. The Bible is to be interpreted in a literal and normal manner. It doesn't refer to... Well, it refers to... Well, let me tell you what it refers to. Number one, that latter statement lays claim to a volume that does not exist. It lays claim to a volume that does not exist now, nor ever has existed. It lays claim to uh, to a document that has never, ever in the history of mankind travelled in its own course. We have never had a time where the original documents were contained into 66 books in one volume. Never existed, never happened. They were individual documents originally penned in their historical time frame. Over a 1,500-year period, this book came together. It didn't come together by one man sitting down there and writing it and we can somehow go to the original document and check whether or not we've got the right words. It didn't happen that way. They lay claim to a document that does not exist. And no matter how good that statement might sound on the first instant to placate the people, it's a false statement within itself. And it can hold no one accountable to anything. Who's going to go back to the original documents? Can you go back to the original documents? They don't exist anymore, beloved. Do we have the Scriptures? Jesus said we have the Scriptures. How did that come about? Well, that'll be a future message. We'll we'll talk about that then. The fact of the matter is that there is no possibility to come to that particular conclusion. When I became a student at VBBC, they asked me to sign the Statement of Faith. I didn't, you know. The principal said, well, you have to. I said, I can't unless you cross this complete first one out because what you're alluding to doesn't exist and you're not willing to hold yourself accountable to what does exist. And I said, no. (laughs) They trained me anyway to a certain degree, you know. They still let me in, which was nice. The original writings do not exist today. And such institutions as this, including churches and pastors, are not able to be held accountable to any single document, unless they've got it in their constitution as we have. 
The former statement, however, that is the, the one that we have in our statement of faith, directs the reader to the very book that is in their own hands and lays claim that this book retains the perfect inspirational qualities that all perfect copies have retained throughout history, losing nothing in translation and, is there, and it thereby holds the church and its pastor directly accountable. You should rejoice that we hold to one version. It doesn't matter what it is. Say it's the ESV, say it's the NIV, say it's the New King James. It doesn't really matter. The point of the matter would be that we are held accountable to one copy of the Bible and that alone. You then have the power within your hands to come to the pastor and say, you didn't preach this right, because the text says this. The text says this. It's happened to me before, you know. Did you know that it's happened to me before? A couple of times. Once by my wife. She made a beeline. I spoke about, you know, I heard a message. You know, you do that, you hear a message. Someone spoke that, you know, that Adam and Eve were naked, but they said that they must have been clothed with light. And, uh, and I've still got the video, actually, because we're taking the video. That's my proof. And she made a beeline to me straight after the service and she opened the text and she goes, goes to Genesis chapter 2, the end of Genesis chapter 2, and it says they were both naked. She goes, where'd you get the idea that they were clothed with anything? And I'm like, good point, good point. Nothing, yeah, no, they're not clothed, they're naked. All right, done, next. <laughs> This is how ministers are to be rebuked. They're held to accountable. Now, if they hold to the book, then no pride should be involved there. They should hold to the book. We are going to go through this in detail over the next seven messages. And these are the points that I'm going to be bringing out in each one of them. And I'm going to give a very, very brief summary here on all seven of them. Very, very brief. Lucky to spend a few minutes on each one of them. The sermons are going to be titled this way. The Persona of truth. With the title of this sermon is The Source of Truth. That was by way of introduction, by the way. The Source of Truth, right? The first sermon will be The Persona of Truth. The second, The Promise of Truth. The third, The Preservation of Truth. The fourth, The Proclamation of Truth. The fifth, The Protest of Truth. The sixth, The Prohibition of Truth. And the last is The Permanence of Truth. These are the messages. And I am aware that it really only takes one sermon to really bring out the truth of this matter completely for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see and are willing to understand. So one hour message would be all that you needed to be able to know why we use the King James Bible. If that's the case, you're free to take the next seven weeks off. But if your desire is to learn more and to get into a deeper understanding of this and to understand the arguments, and I'm going to be dealing with those arguments. I've studied this issue for 10 years, beloved, I'm, I'm not a novice to this. That's the reason why I hold to it. Um, we are going to be spending a good amount of time dealing with it. So I want you to imagine something for a moment. I want you to imagine a world where there is no truth. I want you to imagine a world so filled with deception, a world where every man simply does that which is right in his own eyes. I want you to imagine a world where even the greatest institutions of learning those institutions that are promoted to actually teach the very source of truth, instead teach things which are self-contradictory. Imagine a world filled with books, completely filled with books where the truth is said to be proclaimed, but instead we discover that they are filled only with the vain opinions of men and women 
who themselves are guessing at best as to what is true or false. Imagine what it's like living your life believing you have done your best to follow what truth is only to come to the realisation that there is no such thing. You've exhausted every single avenue to come to the truth and all you found is contradictions everywhere. How do you feel? You get a little bit depressed? I'm seeing Christians so depressed today and it's not completely to do with sin. It's to do with they don't have a final authority anymore. They don't know what's really true. Imagine what it's like living your life believing you've done your best to follow what truth is only to come to that realisation that there is no such thing. No absolutes, no right or wrong, no purpose. You don't care that those statements are, non- uh, are self-contradictory. You don't care about that. That doesn't make any difference to you because as far as you're concerned, everywhere you've looked for the truth, it ain't there. It ain't there. So this is a world where the human population will lose its will to live and looks forward more to the end of life than with fondness to tomorrow and what the excitement of tomorrow might bring. Imagine a world where those who are both charged to preach the truth and expected to have the sure foundation, the very source of truth in the book, themselves create doubt in it. Imagine a world like that. How terrible that would be. Imagine a world that, that, that through the force of their own arguments, all they do is persuade you to follow them. So they become their own little gods and they've got their own little crowd following them along the way. And everybody's following after that preacher and that individual and they hold to that one and that's it. And then he falls and he stumbles and he commits adultery, he commits murder, whatever. And they find some sort of an excuse to still adore him. Imagine now a world that has completely lost its mind. Up is down. Darkness is light. Good is evil. Evil is good. Bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. Imagine a world like that. Can't imagine how long I could sustain myself in a world like that. Imagine a world where boys don't even know whether or not they're boys and girls don't even know whether or not they're girls. Matter of fact, girls actually elevate the greatest attribute of women that belong to men in all our entertainments. Interesting, isn't it? All our superheroes are now women. And I wonder, and I ask myself the question, why it is that a woman who so despises men thinks that the greatest attributes that she can actually edify and exalt are those that naturally belong to men. To me, that's curious. That's curious. Imagine a world where small children are killed for the sake of convenience by their own parent. Imagine such a world. Couldn't imagine such a world. Couldn't imagine living in such a world as that. Imagine a world that cares so little for those who sacrificed to bring up the world into prosperity that are now themselves sacrificed by the world because they've now gone beyond their used-by date and they should be killed or euthanized, whatever term you want to have it. Imagine a world like that. Imagine a world where people that desire themselves to be killed because they can no longer walk to the cinema and they give themselves and they say, well, I think my time's come to a close. Or they can't ride a bike anymore. These are actual cases, beloved. I'm not telling you something that hasn't actually happened. One lady in Holland, she couldn't go to the cinema anymore. That was her reason to end her life. 
Another one couldn't ride a bicycle. That was a reason to end their life. Beloved, they're now doing that to children. They're now doing that to children. If a child thinks that their life's not worth living, they simply end it. They confuse, they confuse life with all its difficulties and trials. They confuse life. They think that it should be comfortable all the time. We need to set the temperature at the proper temperature all the time. And any time we're outside of that temperature, it just ain't right. Life's not worth living. And this is the world that we're living in today. Why? Because truth is fallen in the streets. Truth is fallen in the streets. This is a world that truly believes God has left us with nothing right when we need it the most. This is the world. A world where men who claim to believe the Bible is true really don't. Just dig down a little further under the surface and you find they actually don't believe the Bible is true. I see them everywhere today. Pastors who say they believe the Bible but in practice they deny it. They claim that they have the very source of truth then they choose another authority to correct it. That astounds me. They claim to believe every word of God is pure and then spend 10 minutes out of every single sermon telling you why another word best fits the passage. This is a picture of today's independent Baptist churches. It's a picture of today's independent Baptist churches. I had honestly thought that it was only for the young and the middle-aged who were actually thinking this way. I still had hope that the older ones, the elderly pastors, still held to the book of books. And I discovered this last NBF, they don't. They still don't. They'll still use another authority if they believe it better fits. The words of the Lord are pure words. In their mind is the words of the Lord are slightly tainted, could be polished up a little bit by me. That's their mentality. First passage that we want to turn to this morning is the persona of truth. Yeah, I'm going to definitely be ripping through these <laughs> this seven here. The persona of truth, Deuteronomy chapter 32. Turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 32. There are three passages in the Old Testament that I just want to share with you. The persona of truth, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. Next one we'll look at is Psalm 31. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity. Just and right is he. What is he a God of? A God of truth. A God of truth. Turn to Psalm 31 verse 5. Moving forward. We'll continue that direction to Isaiah and we'll stop there. Psalm 31 verse 5. Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65. a few more books forward same direction after the wisdom books you will get to Isaiah the first big book end of that book Isaiah 65 and verse 16 it says that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hid from mine eyes 
Jesus speaks to of himself as the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Is that true? Here you have the God of truth speaking those things. We have to ask whether or not they are true or whether or not they are false. He is the way of truth. He also speaks about the spirit of the living God. He says, when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. This is the very character of the living God. This is the very nature of the living God. The persona of the Godhead is truth. Truth is associated with who he is. Truth is the very nature of him. And when he speaks, then those words that he speaks are true, absolute, clear, purposefully given to us that we may know that he is true. And every word that proceeds out of his mouth is true. When Jesus told Pilate um, that he came to bear witness of the truth, Pilate responded with his own doubt, asking, what is truth? What is truth? And that's fair enough. That's a fair question. When there is no God that you follow, just a pagan deity that you're after that has the same characteristics of you and I, then if these deities can lie and cheat and steal and do whatever they like, then what is truth? What is truth? There he is looking at truth in the face and he asks that question. The truth of God is inconsistent with either deliberate deceit or deliberate confusion. Beloved, it is inconsistent with the concept of a plurality of his inspired word, all saying something different. To me, this is really logic 101. There was a book that was written, it's titled by uh, Dr. Mickey P. Carter, wrote a book respecting the King James Bible, and the title says it all. He sees the logic in it. Things that are different are not the same. Is that hard to understand? Things that are different are not the same. How do you do that? How do you, and next time I'll, I'll, I'll bring a couple of props, but how do you do that? How do you, how do you say that they're all the same when they're not, they're different? To get your own copyright requires a derivative copyright law. It must be substantially a different work. There was a bu- book written called the, the Making of a Contemporary Version. It was the creation of the NIV. And within that book, the scholarly tool that they used the most to be able to give them the words that they needed to create the NIV was a thesaurus. Wow, genius. Just use another word that says the same sort of thing, sort of. And then you look at the NIV and you grab the exhaustive concordance of the NIV and you have a look at how many individual words are in there and you discover that it's 69,000 words shorter than the King James Bible. Well, so much for heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Well, what happened to those words? They passed away. Lost in translation? I don't think so. There's a lot more that goes on under the surface. A lot more that goes on under the surface. Truth is singular. It is not plural. Not plural. Those things that are different are not the same as that which is true. You can have one car manufacturer one car manufactured by one car manufacturer who can make multiple exact copies of that original. But you cannot have different car makers making cars that must differ by law and then claim that they're the same vehicle. Oh, but it still gets you there, they say. That's not what we're talking about though, is it? Matthew 18, verse 11. For the Son of Man is come to save that which was lost. Deleted. 
in the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, the NLT, the Bad News Bible? Removed completely. You won't find it in there. Go for it. Matthew 18, verse 11. Oh, this is just scratching the surface, beloved. This is, we will have a lot of fun going through all of this in weeks to come. I'm just pointing one particular reality. And that is, that which is different cannot be the same. That which is different cannot be the same. This is the persona of truth. This is what we see. The Son of Man, the very purpose statement of the reason that Jesus Christ came is deleted in modern translations. It's still in the New King James. That's got its own problems. Jesus tells us the very purpose of his coming in Matthew, but the other books of Matthew deleted. How can something so different remain the same? Isaiah 14, verse 12. How thou art fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? How is it that modern versions such as the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, the NLT, the Bad News Bible, give illusions of this as being Jesus Christ who was the one who fell from heaven? Hang on, isn't it Lucifer? Isn't it Lucifer? Isn't that the devil? Isn't that Satan? Well, why is it that the morning, that, the, that all the modern translations actually refer to Christ? Morning star, day star. And it's interesting because if you've got a study Bible and you're trying to work out who this day star is and you follow the links in the study Bible like I did with my study Bible, it takes you directly to Jesus' own words. I am the bright and morning star. Did Jesus fall from heaven? Is he going to be thrown into hell, into the pit? Is this the reason why people like Madame Blavatsky actually believe that Lucifer and Jesus Christ is the same person? Is that the reason? wonder where these Bibles come from. The next one, the promise of truth. Let me just read these for you. They're all noted in your newsletter. They're all there so you can follow them up later. The promise of truth, 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Tells us the mode of inspiration. It speaks about how God had moved men through the Holy Ghost to give us the very words of God. The definition of inspiration is not a complicated one. I'll share with that with you after 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. It says there, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Inspiration is beginning with nothing, and God breathes those words out with of his breath into the lives of those individuals who are penning those words. So when we're talking about God inspiring something, it's beginning with nothing, and then God inspiring those words being put penned on that. Now, you get one page, and it has God's inspired words on there, and somebody else comes along and they says, I want to make a copy of that because that sounds good. And they write the exact same words, and they put it, on another page okay can i ask you a question if they are an exact same copy of what is there does it retain its inspirational quality as the original it does it does they are still the inspired words of god the inspired words of god is not ink and not paper the inspired words are the words okay it retains its inspirational quality 
Now, those of you who can speak more than one language, you already know full well that there are multitudes of words that are perfect equivalents to other words. You also know that there's a handful here and there that you can't actually properly translate into another language. The English language has over a million words, over a million words. I've got the Oxford English Dictionary in my library. It's a large volume. There are over 600,000 words just in there. A million words, a million unique words. Do you know how many unique words are in the King James Bible? 12,500, 14,000 unique words. No, 12,500 unique words. Do you think God could have picked out of a pool of a million words, 12,500 that are perfect equivalents in translation? I speak more than one language. In speaking more than one language, I know that there are words that are perfectly equivalent in translation. Kravata means tie. It doesn't mean anything else. It means tie. So if I had the word kravata and I had the word tie, they're exactly the same word. If I had the word aqua, aqua means water. It just doesn't mean anything else. It just means water. Right? It's the same word, same translation. Companies, international companies around the world exchange contracts one with another. In the exchanging of the contracts one with another, they have to agree on, agree on the translation of those words. Nations that fight against foreign nations, when they make a peace treaty, they have to agree on the translation of the words, beloved. This happens every single day of the week, all the time. So the whole idea that you can't have a perfect translation is rejected by the current process of everything being done. Okay? The inspired, inspirational qualities of the Word of God can, ha- can be there found in copies. The next question is whether or not those copies have been corrupted. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in time to come and we'll touch on it a little bit here. Acts 3.18 says, But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. The promise of truth that is given to us by God respecting Christ has been fulfilled. Fulfilled completely. This is the promise of truth. Romans 9.9 says, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. This recognition of the claim of Abraham. Abraham was going to have a son. God had promised it. God will fulfill it. Are you seeing the nature of God and the character of God? The nature of God is truth. He is truth. He preaches, he teaches truth. He speaks the truth. If all of a sudden he'd lost any of his words, then we wouldn't even know what the truth is. This goes on and on and on. The preservation of truth. The preservation of truth. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. You'll need to turn to this one. When I got to a particular point where I'd studied enough with regards to the English translation of the Bible and all the other multiplicity of versions that are out there, I got to the point where I thought, I believe the King James Bible is the best English translation. But there was also another part of me, and it was a part that I had... Do you know, do you know fear of God is actually healthy? Do you know that? Fear of God is very, very healthy. There's a warning in the beginning of the Bible in Deuteronomy chapter 4 saying don't add to these words. Don't add to these words. There's a warning in the Bible at the end of the book in Revelation. It says don't take away from these words. You're going to take away from these words. I'm going to add to you the plagues that are written in it. And there's a warning in the middle of the Bible. Don't alter these words lest you're going to be found a liar. I've got three warnings within the scripture and telling me not to mess with the words and I've got the King James Bible and I'm looking at it going, I know it's the best. I know it's the best, I'm convinced of the best. But you know what? I ain't going to touch a single word here because I don't know. This could actually be. How do I know? 
I mean, I don't know if God's limited by language. You reckon God can speak English? I don't know. Maybe he can't. Maybe he just gave us the English language, but him himself, he doesn't understand even our prayers. Well, that puts a stone in your shoe, doesn't it? (laughs) God can't speak English, so what's the point of praying? (laughs) It was this verse, Psalm 12. I asked the Lord and I said, you show me, Lord, you show me where you promised to preserve your words and I will believe it. And he led me here, eventually. He led me here. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let me ask you a question. Does it say, Eddie shall preserve them from this generation forever? Does it say a scholar in a Bible college shall preserve them from this generation forever? Does it say that they were ever lost and needed to be found again? Does it say that in there? It doesn't, does it? Who's responsible for preserving the words of God? God. Are we honestly saying that the one that created everything and put all things into motion and that gives you the very breath that sustains you and keeps you alive can't superintend over his own words? Could I ask you what is more difficult, inspiring the words from the very, very beginning through a given individual or just preserving what you've done? Either way, all of those things are a piece of cake for the Lord. There is nothing too difficult for me, he says. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What is it that's so complicated in understanding that verse? God has promised to preserve his words. Whether or not it fits your mindset is completely irrelevant. Someone once said this right, and I, and I, I quoted it again the other day. And I said, a God who is small enough for your mind is not big enough for your needs. If you just reckon you can figure this stuff out and how he's done it, I don't know how he's done it. All I know that he says he's done it. So I believe he's done it. You know, it's a simple one for me. Well, it wasn't initially. <laughs> wasn't initially unfortunately i didn't go through the scriptures to know what god had said i went all the way around looking for all the evidence and all the evidence and all the evidence and i found it and perhaps the lord's done that to me for a reason that i may be able to give the arguments that would challenge people who believe otherwise i think the lord's blessed me immeasurably in that God is the God of truth. If that is his persona, if the promises of truth are given in the Bible and his promises to preserve his words is one of those such promises, then any failure to fulfill that promise denies the very character and the nature of God. You are creating disrepute to my Lord and my Saviour by telling me that he hasn't preserved his words. And the words, it's the words, not the message. The words, beloved, it's the words, not the message. You know how they say, you know, he's really referring to the message. No, no, no. You change the words, you change the message. Here's an example. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. I can't tell you how many sermons I've heard on this particular message, on this particular verse. But you change the words, you change the message. Acts chapter 17 and verse 22. And whatever you use your preferred translation. Oh, that's dangerous. Talk about that later too. Acts chapter 17, verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. And then he goes on, he speaks about the unknown God. 
that is found there. You're too superstitious. You've got an unknown God there that you ignorantly worship. You're ignorantly worshipping an unknown God. Well, modern translations, the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, the NLT, the Bad News Bible, and even the, King, the New King James Version alters those words to very religious. Hang on. I thought he was telling them off. Oh, no, no. He's complimenting them. Do you know how many sermons I've heard that have completely changed that meaning of that text? They're using it in a way to try and encourage people, encourage people, just, and then you slam them with the gospel. No. He's telling them from the beginning. He's being honest from the beginning. But my friends, you're too superstitious. You're worshipping an unknown God. You don't even know who the God is and you're worshipping. Clearly too superstitious. Not very religious. Too superstitious is the word. But you've got to, you change the words, you change the complete message. So don't tell me that it's in the message when it's the words that actually give you the message. These things are vitally important. Isaiah wrote, The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. They keep telling us that no important doctrines have been affected by the changes Beloved, the very doctrine of the preservation of God's Word is affected by the changes. The very doctrine of the preservation of God's Word is affected by the changes. How am I going for time? Ugh, I'm going to have to rip through this one. The proclamation of truth. What have I got here? All right. Talk about the proclamation of the truth. I'm just going to... You've got the references there. Let me shortcut it for you. God had chosen to speak to an individual at the first, Abraham. Spoke to him in what language? Hebrew. The language, of, the language of him. He then chose to speak to his entire nation, right? The people of Abraham. The language that he chose to speak to them was what, what language? Hebrew. Then he chose to get the word of God out into the public domain now. He's desired that Jesus Christ has come and now the word of God had to go into all the land of the people at that particular time. And there was a traveling language, a language of industry at that time, also a spoken language. It was a common language because prior to that, God had Alexander the Great come through and in 11 years completely transformed the world at that time, the known world at that time. And he transformed it and gave to the people a language, Koine Greek. The Word of God that we have in the New Testament was written in what language, as far as we know? It was written in Greek. Do you think God's got a problem with language? Do you think God's got a problem with communicating in language? I don't think He has a problem with communicating in language. The proclamation of the truth had to go out to all the people that He desired to get that proclamation out to. And translation does not limit God's ability. Um, here's a passage. This is a passage. In Acts chapter 21, let me read it for you. In verse 37, as Paul was led into the castle, he said to the chief captain, may I speak unto thee? Who said, canst thou speak Greek? Art not, that, art not thou that Egyptian, which before these days made an uproar and led us out into the wilderness, the 4,000 men that were murderers? And Paul said, I'm a man, which is a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people. Stop there. Gave him license to speak unto the people and he, and he spoke. That's Acts, Acts chapter 21. The next one is Acts chapter 22. You know what language Paul spoke to the people? Spoke to them in the Hebrew tongue. How have we got it written down in our Bibles originally? In the Greek. Is that not an inspired translation? When Jesus was on the cross and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Is that not an inspired interpretation? 
goes from one language to another within the very text. When he took the damsel by the hand and he said unto her, Talithai kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Is that not an inspired interpretation? Are, they, are those words not perfectly interpreted between what Jesus said in that one verse? Clearly he did. In Genesis chapter 42, we have Joseph speaking to his brethren through an interpreter. You remember that? He's there and he's speaking to them through an interpreter because he didn't want them to know that he was Joseph, right? They're speaking in Hebrew. He understood every single word that they said. But he's speaking to them in response through an interpreter, speaking to them in Egyptian. What do we have in our Bibles? It was in Hebrew. We don't have it in Egyptian. We have in the book of Ezra the Syrian letters. Well, the Syrian letters are really interesting because they were supposedly written in Syrian, but we've got them in Hebrew. Again and again and again. God doesn't have a problem. But can I ask you, who created language? Do you really think he's got a problem with language, beloved? I mean, really, really. And it really strikes me as interesting because every single one of these so-called scholars will pick up what they believe is a Greek interpretation of the Hebrew Bible in the Septuagint, apparently the book of the Seventy. There's no evidence that that book ever existed, by the way. And I'll go through that in time too. But I'll show you the exact evidence that we have for the Septuagint. I'll show you exactly what we do have. Yet they hold that as authoritative. Why? So they hold the Greek authoritative representation of the Hebrew, but they won't hold the English authoritative to all of those two. I I, I think that they speak on both sides of their mouth and they confuse the beloved brethren. Preservation of the Word of God the very fact that the proclamation of the truth, God had gotten his word out to the people that he desired to get his word out to. We're living in the last of the last days. We need his word more today than ever before. Are we really saying that God has not given us his words? The protest of the truth. Ah. Can you bear with me a few more minutes? Can you, please? All right, I'm I'm really sorry. I, 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 I know the subject and I want to squeeze everything into one sermon, but I just... The protest of the truth. And the Lord commanded the man in Genesis 2, you know the passage, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Who did God speak to? Adam. Spoke to Adam. Was Eve around? She wasn't around. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good from evil. What do we see happening there? Immediately, we are introduced to another character. And that character is the devil. The character appears as a serpent. And as a character of the serpent, he actually does one thing. There's one phrase that comes out of his mouth. It's the first time he's ever spoken in history. And what does he say? He creates doubt in the word of God from the beginning. Creates doubt in the word of God from the beginning. And then Eve responds and she quotes the Lord. We may eat of the fruit... And God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, God said nothing about touching it. And it wasn't lest you die, it was you shall surely die. Eve was doing the NEV version. 
It's the New Eden version. Okay? So in the New Eden version, that was her version of the Word of God. She added to the Word. She took away a little bit from the Word. And now she's fallen. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her and he did eat. A lot of people have got this funny idea that Adam turned up a little bit later but it's denied in the text because the serpent is always speaking in the plural. You wouldn't know that if you had modern translation. We know that because the Bible distinguishes between the singular and the plural pronouns. Adam was there with her. What's the man's job? for his wife protect her or just let her go by the way he's there to protect her did Adam do his job no he didn't why because he wanted to eat he wanted to eat he wanted the fruit he wanted the fruit doubt in the words of God was created from the very beginning it was the very first time we see Satan speak and that is significant I wanted to I want to make this abundantly clear because immediately after that effect we had the entire fall of man And I want to make something very clear. Every pastor, every single pastor who has ever created a doubt on a single word of the Bible has repeated Satan's lie and is the very cause of today's mess. And this includes all the Bible colleges, none of which have a precedent in the Bible to even exist, beloved, believe it or not. There is lucky to be a single Bible college in Australia that is not directly linked to a church and coming under the direct authority of a pastor that is not a devil's tool for training preachers on how best to create doubt in God's word to all who would hear it. People are lost today and they're lost and are finding no place of assurance because there's no rest for their souls. They have no rest in a final authority. They have no rest in an absolute. Let me read you this quote and this is so true. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, Paul writes and he says, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. We are not as many which corrupt the word of God. There were many people corrupting the word of God back in his day. But what do we know about God's promise? He'll preserve his words. Paul makes it clear even in his own day. What would happen in Christianity If we allow this to enter in, well, we have a quote from 1832 in Banner of the Truth, uh, Banner of the Church, Simpson and Clapp, Volume 2, Issue 7, page 99, and this is what he writes. If alterations of the received version once commence, where will they end? Mind you, we didn't have an alteration yet, but there was a lot of talk about it. There was a lot of talk about a revision of the Bible back in 1832. Anybody remember when the actual revision came out? What year? 1881. Okay. It came out in 1891 in America. A bit of money involved there. You know, get 10 years, get some cash up, and then you can... So it's the standard version in America. It's the revised version in the UK and Australia. If alterations of the received version once commence, where will they end? The reception of the authorised version of the Bible by the whole Christian community, wherever the English language is spoken, is a blessing the value of which cannot be estimated and the loss of which would be one of the heaviest curses which could befall the Church of Christ. If one substitution may be made, another may be. And the Bible, by this impious transmutation, become, after a few successive changes, the book of man and not the book of God. If to the curse pronounced on him who should remove his neighbour's landmarks 
all the people were required to say amen, what shall be said of them who remove the landmarks of the faith and turn aside the wanderer from the path that leads to heaven? Beloved, when there is one version of the Bible, God is the authority. God is the authority. When there are conflicting versions of the Bible, man becomes the authority. If you cannot see that there's something vile that's been done, regardless of what you think about the King James Version, all right? Let's just set that aside for a moment, okay? If you cannot see that something vile has been done within the churches today, to better search this question out and understand the, 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 the source of all this confusion, then you will never, ever be settled in your faith. You'll never grow. You'll never grow. In my library, I have 41 books talking about, in my physical library, but 41 books actually talking about the issue with Bible versions. That's the physical library. I've got another 17 books on Kindle and I've got another five in PDF format. There are literally hundreds of books that have been written on this particular issue. And there is but a handful of books that have been written condemning King James onlyism. We're talking about the source of the Word of God, the prohibition of truth, those other two I'm going to have to leave until next time. I'm going to have to leave until next time. But you see the, the, the line. We go from creating doubt, all right, in this particular point, okay, the protest of truth, then we go to the prohibition of truth. We're going to be coming to a point, beloved, where they will not tolerate you holding the Bible in your hands. We were at the uh, uh, Australian Christian Lobby Conference yesterday on Friday and there was a lady who, um, who she was kicked out, frog-marched out of the cafe because she had the Bible in the cafe and they were doing a Bible study with another lady. She ended up taking them to court and, sec- and secured an apology, right? But can you see that? You open the Bible in a, ca- in a public place, oh my goodness. Where is your foundation? Where is your hope? Beloved, your hope is in the book. The only thing you need, you can't understand it, try reading it. Read it. Read it. Read the Bible. Read the Word of God. It is your hope and is your foundation. God bless you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know, dear Lord, this sermon went long and I ask and pray, dear Father, you would be with us and glorify your name. I pray, dear Father, that in every way there may be hope found in the people of God that they will turn to the book of God and see that there is something so vitally important that is missing if they don't have your words. I pray, dear Father, you would be with my brethren here and please, dear Lord, I pray that they be not mad at me, that they would simply consider these words and consider them, dear Father, and help make sense of them. I pray, dear Lord, for your blessing upon us that we may rejoice in the knowledge of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you.